I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hello, it's Allison, and welcome back to the podcast. As uh, promised, I always bring you the best of the best, and I'm really excited to have the last podcast of the year be with my friend, Jamie Mason Cohen. So let me uh, tell you a little bit about uh, Jamie so that you'll be as excited about this next bit of time with him. Jamie Mason Cohen is the recipient of the TED Education Huff Post-International Teachers Award. He has taught in high schools for over a decade, and he once worked for Saturday Night Live. He is also a guest parenting expert on Global's The Morning Show, which he and I have actually appeared on several times together. He's the author of the Amazon bestselling memoir, Live From Your Classroom. Everything I learned about teaching, I learned from working at Saturday Night Live. And his TEDx talk on how to spot a leader in their handwriting has been viewed 2.2 million times. Now, he jokes that 2.1 million of those are him and his mom and me. So there you go. (laughs) Uh, Obviously a winner there. He's conducted over a thousand parent-teacher conferences as a teacher and as a proud dad to a seven-year-old daughter and an eight-year-old son. Gosh, they're growing up so fast. I've known Jamie for a while. Uh, Jamie created an online course called How to Raise Happier and Healthier Teens to help parents get to know their kids better in order to help them be happier, healthier, and more confident. We're going to talk about that today. And of course, as always, I will put links up in the show notes because as much as we're going to dive into this, I know this is just the beginning of resources that Jamie can provide parents, and I want you to continue uh, learning great wisdom from him. So thank you for joining me today, Jamie. Great to see you. Allison, I'm thrilled to be with you. Yeah, yeah, we've had uh, we've had some great times in the past and I can't wait for parents to get to know you better. And uh, so I wanted to start off actually talking about the weirdest thing in my humble opinion uh, because being a woman of science as you know with my science degree when when I found out that you are a handwriting guy and I was like Pfft. 
Yeah, right. Do my tarot cards too. I'm not into this new agey stuff. And then you won me over. You did a handwriting analysis. You blew my mind. I'm like, you know how many sessions it would take in a therapy setting to dig into somebody enough to be this accurate? So I, I want to start. I want to start there. What's your magic? And and uh, and why would parents care? Because you you believe that you do this with leaders in corporate settings, but you think there's actually a value for for parents to know something about this? Yeah, absolutely. See, handwriting is your personality on paper. So you could call it brain writing or frozen body language. And so the act of writing starts in your brain. It sends a signal down the nervous system to your hands and your fingers that you write with carry out the directive of your brain. So Allison, your writing paints a picture of what you think. And each stroke you make on the page is correlated to a particular personality trait. And I can see about a hundred personality traits and an infinite number of patterns that exist to make people that make parents the parents they are. Now, if you think about, you talk about from the science perspective, there have been many studies both in Canada and the US recently that show that when you write things down by hand, your absorption rate increases by 30%. In note-taking, your hand-eye coordination is improved. And so this is just another way that the neural pathways connect between your hand and your mind. So yes, it's not the only thing I would do. I would be skeptical about any type of personality assessment tool, but this is a fun, fast, and accurate way to quickly assess certain components or traits of how you're showing up on the unconscious. And so there's where Adlerian theory would definitely agree with you that when we talk about holism, you can't hide from yourself. Your personality shows in everything you do. And um, this is just a great example of that in, in process. And somebody who knows how to interpret it is going to have great insights. And I'm sure when you share this back to people that they all would have had the same reaction that I did, which was, absolutely, you're, you're, you did, you're revealing something to myself that on one level I, I kind of know. Uh, and then to put it to good purpose, right? Which is, so what could parent, what would you discover about a parent that would be put to good purpose in their parenting? Yeah. So as we're speaking about the year ahead, it's not to be too hard on ourselves as a parent. Like you said, uh, we are both parents at different stages of being a parent is I'm going to give you a few tips that if the parents are right now listening, they could actually get out a piece of paper and a pen now. I would suggest now, but you could do it after. And I want you to write out two sentences. I brought my pad and paper. I know what the sentences okay. are because you've done this on me, but I, yeah. I'm doing I'm doing it again just in case I change my core personality since I did it a few right. years ago. <laughs> <laughs> now it doesn't, you know, ideally it's on a blank piece of paper, but if it's lined, it's okay as well. And this two sentences are, I told you and your purple people eater friend, I'll repeat this, to take that silly monkey and go back to the darn zoo. I'll repeat that. I told you and your purple people eater friend to take that silly monkey and go back to the darn zoo and then sign your name underneath. Now you could take any two lines of writing and it's just a sample. It's by no means the entire picture. 
Now, here are a few things that you could look at how you might improve, or more importantly, this brings self-awareness to areas that if it works for you, to ask yourself with self-honesty, because nobody's judging, Allison's not judging you, I'm not judging you, to ask yourself if you're doing this and how it might be showing up with your parenting. And the first is, if you write on a perfect line across, so it looks like you could almost underline it without an actual ruler, it's so precise, right across, and everything is meticulous, every detail is meticulous with that writing, that might be that you are afraid not to be in control. So as a parent, you want to be in control in every aspect of your own life and by extension and projection, every aspect of your child's life. Now, on a po- how could that be a positive? Well, it could be a positive because you care so deeply about wanting your child to have the best that you want, you care for their uh, emotional state. You care for uh, what's happening in their life and wanting every component in a way that you feel is best for them. Because as a parent, you know best. On the flip side, any trait, if it's overextended, overused, or overdependent on, it might be considered to be a liability at times or work in the opposite favor of what we would like. And that could be a form of perfectionism that's projected or pushed on our child of how we think they should be in every aspect of their life. And so that's the one first trait I want you to look at. Are you writing on that exacting straight line with a ruler underneath where you need to be in control all the time? And, and, if, and I, that's a key word, the exact, the, an exacting type personality based yeah. on an exacting type writing. Yeah. And Allison, what do you hear when I, when I make that comment about that trait representing that particular area? Yeah. I I mean, we certainly, to your point, uh, we all have in Adlerian psychology, we talk about uh, lifestyle priorities and uh, control is, is one of them if we're making buckets. And, uh, and I like what you're saying There's growth enhancing growth, inhibiting attributes to that. We really like people that care and have structure and set good boundaries um, but to the nth degree, you know, could it be that we are pressureful, uh, have high exacting standards, and that kind of misfires on relationship building? Mm-hmm. And then the other area I want to um, bring to your attention is look at your signature. Now, in your signature, do you cross out your name? Either cross out? What do you mean cross out? You actually, with the pen... You make a line through it. You take the lo- a line right through it. So you don't just write out the letters, but there is a line that looks like you're crossing it out, like you're rubbing it out. There's oh, kind of like the Zorro, the big Zorro a Nike Zorro. swipe. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So if you are listening and you, and you in any way you actually uh, cross it out or it looks like you're rubbing it out, almost like with ink, you're, ru- you're writing it out, that might be you are too hard on yourself that you're trying to be invisible. You're, you don't fully appreciate your own skill set, And if you do it in the last name, that is the name that is connected to your family, your past. It might be because something in your past has made you feel that your ideas as a parent, because it's connected to the family, so it carries forth into your own ability as a parent, is not worthy you literally might feel invisible at times. If it's through your first name, it's connected to, for some reason, 
ask yourself, am I some, for some reason, crossing out or what I think doesn't have value? And so the way that you can overcome that is by being aware and saying, do I feel that for some reason that my abilities as a parent, as a partner are not valid, that they're invisible, that they're not worthy? And don't answer right away, of course not. This is on the unconscious. This might not be something you're even aware of. And let it sit for a few days. And then if it is an issue, if you do feel, my suggestion in graphal therapy, which is a form of personal transformation that by the belief is when you change a letter formation, you are having a positive impact on rewiring the neural pathways in your brain. Not that alone, but it's one thing that can help. And even if it's just the placebo effect, you know, different forms of therapy are the placebo effect. I believe this is more than that. It reminds you that your ideas as a parent are valuable and that they do matter and that they have worth and they are acknowledged. Don't cross your name out anymore. Write your name out all the way through letter for letter with confidence, with strength, and stop yourself from crossing it out. And the belief is if you do that, it will change your self-image and the way that you perceive yourself in a family dynamic and situation and how you so it, perceive yourself. So yeah. we get rid of the dissonance. If my handwriting shows that I'm valuable, I'm more apt to wire for that in my brain. And I'm kind of pushing it in from the motor memory up. Exactly. Yeah. So those are two tips. I want to tell, tell them the one about the first letter. Oh, you probably had more. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. W which one? The first the size, letter? The size of the first letter of your name. Yeah. Because mine, so mine's large. Can I just, I'm going to tip my cards right there, people. Right. So that that's a positive trade. Oprah Winfrey, Sir Richard Branson, the entrepreneur, they have very first, they have letter, their first letters are about two and a half times the size of the, of the letters that follow in their first name or their last name. So look at your signature is the first letter about two and a half times the size. You can just measure it, you know, uh, by just looking at it. Is it really big compared to the middle zone or the smaller or the lowercase letters that follow in either the first or last name? If it is, then it shows you walk with confidence. You command respect in social situations. You create clear boundaries in your life. And it's a healthy sense of ego. It's knowing thyself. It's having a powerful self-image. If it's in your signature, it tends to be your authority in the world. That's who you are at work. If it's in your last name, it can be connected to your family. So there's a lot of confidence in yourself, confidence in your family. If they're connected, the first name and the last name, then usually there is some type of a dynamic going on between how you see yourself and how you're connected to your family. Now, if you don't have that big first letter, that could mean a sense of humility, a quiet confidence. You might not be the one who wants to step up and command the room. You might be the one who is humble and in the back. And we know, Allison, that leaders are just as successful if you have that dynamic personality like Richard Branson, like Oprah, like you do, and for the audience, if you're a parent who has really small writing, it could mean that you are more comfortable with being in the back, letting others take center stage, 
but you in your own way lead by example, are open to new ideas, and are not afraid to be the one who lets others shine first. So we need confidence, but we all want to balance that with humility. And, and say why you picked the sentence, I told your purple people-eating friends to take that silly monkey and go back to the darn zoo. You didn't make that one up. I chose that. It's actually not my sentence. It is from my many years of doing this. That particular sentence has all the traits in your handwriting that I can see instantly. So usually when I do this, I usually do with groups, but if I did individually, when I do celebrity analysis, and Allison, I consider you a celebrity, so. I did, yeah. <laughs> well, I did thank, your... <laughs> thank you with my very large age, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, um, I'll spend three to four hours analyzing pages and pages of writing. Yes, and you did, have, of... you did have me submit much more than just one sentence when we did our work together, yeah. Yeah. But when I do groups, like I just finished a group just before this call for 15 people in a Toronto company, I looked at all the writing at the end of the call and I would spend about two to three minutes looking at their strengths in front of their peers so that they feel acknowledged and heard. So that sentence and that signature is a fun, fast, and it's still highly accurate as to what characteristics show up in your public life and in your personal life. Amazing. So can a parent get their child to write this sentence and sign their name and, and see how their self-esteem is based on uh, that first letter or anything else with that a layman uh, could, could pull off in terms of analyzing their kids? What would you look for? You know, you'd, you've done this with students in your classroom, I'm sure. What, 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 what would be a couple of key ones that might be kind of fun and helpful? Yeah. So I, yeah, I did do that. And even though the trend is clearly in the direction of everything online all the time, I still feel it's a valuable tool to teach. You can literally teach kids how to write in two weeks with online materials. We, my wife, Karen, and I taught our kids cursive writing by getting them workbooks, uh, going to Indigo and getting a few workbooks, and also even online with, with the uh, stylus-type devices. That also counts as writing. And it does stimulate those places in the brain. You know, Allison, that when they look at the brain in recent studies, they found that when the areas of creativity and reasoning in children light up, 40% more of the time when they're writing things by hand. And that also includes arts, like when they're actually just drawing and doing things, but with the writing strokes, then when they're on the computer doing things. So uh, I think that that is very critical when you think about uh, students who get accommodations that are allowed to use laptops, that we're stopping teaching cursive writing, uh, and that we are doing more through the keypad, through, you know, these interfaces, and we might be missing out on an opportunity. And I want to, I want to, you know, start bridging into what you know about creativity and how that can show up, how families can help nurture more creativity at home and how teachers in, in this weird interface of Zoom um, might nurture that in their classrooms. Absolutely. Before we go into that, we can bridge with, if you get your kids to write that sentence and sign their name, Allison, you would know more about this than I would, um, but I will take a, um, a good estimate and say that a child's brain is not fully developed when they are elementary school age, even high school age, correct? True. Yeah, that's yeah. correct. Yet, 
Uh, everything I'm saying to you was I was an experiment. My mom was a handwriting analyst. She was a, a high school teacher and a principal. And I learned handwriting analysis initially from her when I was a teenager. And she saw strokes in me that looked like a figure eight. So, you know, when you're skating, you see that figure eight motion. She saw those strokes in me because I stuttered as a kid. I had a stuttering challenge when I was 13 years old. And I came home one day after doing a soliloquy as part of a, an assignment in drama class, and I froze. I couldn't get the words out, and I was devastated. Some kids laughed. They snickered. I came home. I told my mother about what happened. She asked me to see my journal for that day at school, and she saw this trait, this fluency trait, and she also saw high T-bars. So the high T-bar is if you think about, if you look at the writing you just did, and, this, and, and you apply this to your children when, when, if you look at their writing, and if you look at the small T, so that's a small size T, it's a line down, right? It's a, it's, um, you, you see a line and then there's a stem across. If that stem is high, it tends to be high self-esteem and it goes hand in hand with confidence. So my mother saw these two traits in me, fluency, which wouldn't have made sense rationally because I had a stuttering challenge. And the second thing was I wasn't particularly feeling good about myself either, was I? Because I, I'm, well, I'm telling you I wasn't because of that situation. My mother said to me, honey, I think one day you are going to want to speak and write in some type of professional setting. And you, <laughs> she said this, and you will set high goals in that area because she put them together because handwriting analysis is a puzzle. You're looking at these different characteristics and you're creatively, but you're not being creative. It's based on what you see. You're pulling them together to say what kind of a person would have these traits and you're bringing them together. And that's where the professionalism and the experience comes in. But my mother saw in me something before I saw it in myself. She believed in me before I believed in myself, which I think is a really positive trait that parents can have and impact they can have on their kids. And I was skeptical. I said, mom, are you telling me I can, you can analyze my personality based on a few strokes on the page? That's crazy. But I didn't say that. <laughs> I thought it because my mother is my hero. But what it did is it planted a seed that I could change and I could grow. And handwriting analysis became this means, this weird personality assessment tool that I could learn about myself. My point of this story is in a child's handwriting, you can see things that can in some ways show a vision. The use of a vision, it's a guide to the future. It doesn't mean it's all going to like Nostradamus come true, but it provides some type of guidance and direction for the future. And if you can point your kids in a direction of what some of their positive traits are, their innate talents before they even see it, then I think that is uh, effective parenting, not just from a former teacher's point of view, but also from a parent's point of view, which I try to do with my own kids. So the traits that my mother saw in me did come true 30 years later. I'm a professional speaker, a writer, a media producer. I do these things that at the time might have seemed to be a bit not far-fetched, but there was no reason other than me being a creative kid to make that prediction when I had these ingrained talents, uh, challenges. So here are two things that you can look for in your children. And by knowing these things, and there's a lot more than two, I did a whole course on this, but what this does is it doesn't stop at the trait. What it does is it brings your awareness to ask yourself, how is that showing up in my child's life? Is it showing up in my child's life? And then maybe you want to dive deeper into it. 
do you maybe you call Allison and ask, this is what uh, I, I think might be going on. What are you hearing? So it's a great stepping stone into having a larger conversation with techniques that move beyond handwriting analysis, beyond the identification. And so here are a few things you can look at if your child is struggling in certain ways. And I can give another story if it's appropriate after, Please, if we have time. Yeah. yeah. Um, here's the first one. Look at the T-bar. Is the T-bar going from left to right? or right to left. So it should be, I don't make absolutes with handwriting, but this is one absolute. You'll hear why in a moment. Look at the lowercase t. So it look, should look like a cross. Is that cross on that lowercase t moving from left to right, moving forward, or is it moving backward? And if it's moving backward, is there a sharp point at the end when it moves backward? Now, in context, if your child is left-handed or if you are left-handed, this might not apply. Great I am left-handed, and I've done this from time to time. So we might have to, uh, unfortunately, us lefties sometimes get the uh, short end of the stick sometimes, right? Everything is designed for righties, uh, or some many things are. If you're right-handed and you do this stem backward with a point, that could mean literally like an arrow thrown right back at your chest. I'm making on the microphone this, this sharp. It's literally like Shakespeare said in Macbeth, throwing daggers at the heart, to paraphrase. It's like you're throwing daggers back at yourself. And, and if it's pointed, it might mean you are being sarcastic with yourself, that there's a voice in your head on an unconscious level that's saying, you're stupid, you're no good. And I mean, I've heard my kids from time to time say negative things. They, they'll say negative things out loud like, oh, I'm not good. I'm not. And I jump on that right away and say, no, 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 let's, you know, you're, it's not, you're not good. It's just, you're, you're, you're struggling with this one thing. You know, it's to catch them on that negative self-talk because I can, I, I know how harmful it can be um, on my, on myself, but also with students. If you see that in your child's writing, if you see it in your own writing, you might want to ask, what voice am I listening to? And what assumptions or beliefs do I need to help my child let go in order for them to progress and move forward with confidence, with healthy sense of self? So that's the first thing I would look at. And the story that I have connected to that is I was a teacher for 11 years. Nine of those was at a private school and two of those were at public school. And actually, one other year was overseas. And every year, I would do handwriting analysis or integrate it into my students' everyday, uh, whether it's writing essays or creative writing or journaling, morning pages where you write freehand, stream of consciousness, whatever's on your mind. I would incorporate these into the English classes because I was an English teacher for the most part. And the students were fascinated with the handwriting analysis. And one day, a, a, a young man, without obviously giving his name or too many details, he always would write on the board because I'd actually have them go up and write on the board. And he would always do the T-bar backward like I'm describing. And uh, he came to a parent-teacher interview, which was unusual because usually it was just the parent. But about 10% of the time, the kids would come. And uh, the mother came in and she was sobbing and she had her arms crossed and she said to me, I don't know what to do anymore, Mr. Cohen. 
everybody is telling me that my son has a short attention span, is that he speaks out inappropriately. And the son was right there, by the way. And he doesn't have very many friends, that he's antisocial. And I am sick of that because everybody is saying almost like a parrot, like everyone is conspired to say these things about my son. I want to know something that no teacher has told me at this school. And I want to know it right now. And you have to understand, uh, parents know this, that there's usually a line out the door for certain subjects because of the nature of parents wanting to know. And I was the kind of teacher that I would do my best to give every parent as, as much as I could within that five minutes. And sometimes I would go too long and forget about. So I had parents literally knocking on the door. It's my turn. It's my turn. And I said, do you want to hear something you've never heard before? She says, yes. I said, even if it's a bit unconventional, she goes, yes, I want to hear it. I want to hear it right now. So I said, okay. And I turned to the son, the young man and I said, can you get out a piece of paper? And he knew exactly what I was going to do. And I said, you want to write the sentence out, which I showed you today in this podcast. And he wrote it out without hesitation. She's looking at it, doesn't really know what's going on. And I said, you see what he's doing? And she says, what? I said, he's crossing his T backwards and he's putting an arrow on it. And do you know what that shows? It shows that he's beating himself up. He's saying to himself, I'm no good. I'm stupid. He's sarcastic. He's mean spirited. He's got a great sense of humor, but it's projected in a negative way at himself. And I want you to know, and I turned right to the sun and I said, I want you to know that I see you. I see your brilliance. You have a photographic mind when it comes to NFL statistics. You are very funny. And sometimes it's sarcastic. And I sometimes laughing at the back of the room. And you know what? There's a place for that. And we can work on that. And I'll tell you something. There's other kids in the school who also love football. And we need to start a club because I was also head of the clubs. And we're going to start a football club. But you need to stop right now before we talk about academics. And we have to change the narrative of that voice in your head, the story that you tell yourself because you're hurting yourself. And you know what? Your mom is right. Your mom is right because she cares so deeply. Look at your mom right now. She cares about you. She wants the best for you. And you know what? We're going to start right now and flip that voice in your head. And then the mother stops. She didn't have an expression. She's looking down and she turns to him and she says, you know what? Mr. Cohen's right. You always say those things to yourself. Are you saying those things even when I'm not there? And he just puts his head down and he nods. And she says, what do we need to do to change that voice? So the next day we got together and we started a club. It was called the NFL football club. And two kids showed up on day one, five kids showed up the next week and jumping ahead three months, it was named club of the month in that month. And he had 25 kids and I walked down the hall and I saw him and I, I get goosebumps when I recall the story, even though I have it was goosebumps with you telling me. And I walked down the hall and I had a busy day. I had a million, you know, things I needed to do as a teacher and as an administrator. And I was just exhausted, not having the best day. And I walked and I walked past the room because it was in my English room that this kid did this event and all and his back was toward me. And I see this packed room of boys, his age, uh, great, you know, at that grade. And they're all listening to him and he's holding court, Allison, and it's his room. And at that moment, I guess kids looked and they, they, they know me and they looked and they waved and he just turns around and him and I just made eye contact and smiled and nothing more needed to be said. And I ran into the mother shortly thereafter and she said, Mr. Cohen, I need to tell you something. Remember that thing that you did, the parent teacher? She said, of all the years with all my kids, no one has ever 
done something that strange before, you know? And she said, that was the moment that something changed with the insight from that weird thing that you did, that handwriting. That was the difference. I just want to thank you for that. Wow. And this is why you have won a teaching award, my friend. Powerful stuff, right? Powerful stuff. And you still um, took the time to write a book so that you could help other teachers use some of the magic that you just talked about there. Not necessarily the handwriting part of it, but but from your years at um, working at Saturday Night Live. And um, can you talk a little bit about what the sort of origin story was for that book and some of the, the gems that people can expect to find there? Because you don't just have to be a teacher to benefit from that book. I mean, there really is a a theme of connectivity and creativity in that book as well. Yeah. I mean, when you're laughing, you're learning, said a comedian, John Milner. And the impetus of the book really is I was around some of the most brilliant creative minds in front of the camera, behind the camera, comedians, especially where I would spend weeks on end with different projects through the world of Lorne Michaels, who's the executive producer of Saturday Night Live. And I had the opportunity to observe their process, their creative process, how they start with an idea and it becomes a comedy routine. It becomes a story that goes on a comedy show. And I consider myself a creative person and I wanted to learn and absorb and apply that to different contexts. So when I became a teacher, I asked myself, how can I take what I've learned from this world and apply it to this world? Because I believe like the late uh, Sir Ken Robinson, is that who I? Uh, yes, it is yes. Sir Kenneth Robinson. Yeah, yes. Sir Kenneth Robinson, whose famous TED talk, if you haven't seen it, about how schools kill creativity, which I think is a generalization. I don't know if, uh, I think within school systems, there are many creative teachers who are trying to you know, reinvent different areas to make them as relevant and entertaining and practical as possible for their students. And what I wanted to do was combine the type of creative problem solving strategies and tools and environment that I saw and bring it to high schools, elementary schools, and adult learners. And so Many of the ideas uh, I'll, I'll touch on now are not all from my own origin. They are from my origin of finding them and then sublimating them or pushing them into, not pushing them, but taking them to new places. And when I won that Ted Huffington Post Award, I wasn't so, I was honored to win the award, but essentially... I was so intrigued with helping students, especially those who had challenges with reading or didn't like reading and finding new ways to explore texts, a new way to explore novels that I created a, at that time, a new way of looking at a book from a three-dimensional holistic standpoint that when the students at the end, I had a survey, they they judged it as the most impactful assignment they've ever had when it came to reading a book uh, in these were grade nines. And it was recognized by Ted and Huffington Post amongst, I think it was over 14,000 applications from around the wow. world that they chose one from Canada, which was me 
and two others internationally. And we went to New Orleans, TED Education in that state. It happened to be in that state. Ashton Kutcher was there, Mila Kunis. And they asked me to do a sidebar presentation. It wasn't the main stage. I did my TEDx talk later where I explained what this technology was. And I actually toured throughout parts of Canada and the US at educational conferences to show how I did this. So I only say that more out of proof that this type of application from the world of comedy did have practical application and does have practical application for all learners, not just the ones who are naturally creative, those who don't see themselves as creative. And I really think every child is creative. And, and it's just a matter of tapping into different types of thinking and learning perspectives for that to happen. So I can share with you a few simple things that you can do right now when you stop listening to this and apply it in your own home. And it works both for kids who you who you feel like I have two kids, they're different, right? Our kids can be very different in their out outlooks. One child might love doing arts and crafts or wanting to play the piano or expressing their creativity and imagination in different ways. And the other one might have want nothing to do with it, including reading. So these are a few things that I found that work with students. And I also do it, my wife and I do it in our own home to the best of our abilities. The first thing I would say is create the environment. So, you know, some of us um, have homes, some of us have apartments, you know, regardless of what you have, is there a corner of their room or a shared room that they have with a sibling or any space that you can make just as their creative environment to create? And that's the first thing I, I found important is making it a, a safe space where they can create in an uninterrupted way from time to time, meaning like there's going to be natural interruptions within a home and homes are very busy or apartments are busy with families. But is there a, an environment that you can help them create that's theirs? Well, Maybe what would you put in there? Well, uh, we have, uh, if I'm thinking my kids' rooms are right behind me, uh, my daughter's room, she has uh, something you wanted to, we might touch on later is a little vision board, which I've modeled for them. So all it is, is a little cork board in the corner of her room. And my daughter is seven, Maya, and that has pictures of things that are important to her. So it's uh, her family. Uh, she loves dogs. So she we download pictures of dogs and we put them on there. Uh, certain pictures that she's drawn that I wanted it to be and my wife wanted it to be that she loved, not just that we loved. So she sees herself as a creator, as a, as a creative person. So it's not just tied to what her parents think about her creativity. So we encourage her to put up ones that she, that she made at school. And so it's personal, it's items that give her energy. And the key there is it's visual, metaphorical. So it's not just all writing. People are visual as well as what they, what, they, what they write. So give kids the opportunity to think about how their space can be inundated or uh, infused with creative visual prompts that make them feel special, that make them feel acknowledged, and that remind them that they are creative beings. So creating the environment putting things in that space. My daughter also loves uh, stuffies, she calls them, right? So uh, I have one here. So, you know, cute stuffed animals. And so <laughs> they're packed with 
stuffed animals. Do you have she- to kiss every one of them goodnight before she'll go to sleep? Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, not only that, but uh, if I if I say I say, sweetie, I didn't get my hug before I go to bed, and she goes, Daddy, don't lean on, and she has names for all of them. Don't lean on Teddy. You knocked him over. I said, oh, yeah, it's a so real sorry. person. Yeah, yeah, sorry, uh, sorry. She goes, oh, just be careful next time. Okay, I'll be careful. Next night, same thing happens. Can I have my hug? Ah, Jenny, you just knocked over Jenny. That's the second time you've done it this month. Okay, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. So yeah, but that that that's her space, right? So she's creating boundaries. This is a, a space that she creates and she'll go to her desk and she will sit there for for a child a long period of time you know 45 minutes an hour and not really move and she'll sit and she'll work and she'll draw or she'll do cursive writing or whatever the creative project is at the time and not needing uh, a too much uh prompting you know my son needs a little more uh prompting in order to stay in that spot he's very creative too but in my daughter's case it's a it's it's created in that way my son sits in a chair like a almost a comfy chair that he has in his corner, and he's got one of those desk, uh, you know, desk covers, and he puts his work on it or his book, and that's his way in that corner of creating his space with medals or different, you know, sports things or other things that make him feel good about how he expresses himself creatively. So creating the environment and encouraging them to do so, giving them ideas without planting in their head what to put in there, giving them some prompts of, of what they could do. I, you know, it's, I'm so glad you're sharing this because my mother was an art teacher. And so I didn't really realize that other people don't have creative environments that, I, you know, it's funny how you just think the whole world is the way your world was. Right. But if you didn't have a parent who had that on their radar and then made those opportunities available and encouraged it. Yeah. Be easy to miss the boat on that. Yeah, absolutely. I think a few other things that are easy to implement. They're not, they're not simple. They're easy to implement and they take consistency and work to really reinforce is there's no such thing as making a mistake. So I find that sometimes my kids will be hard on themselves, which I'm sure they got it from their father because I can be really hard on myself and I, I could be putting that out there to them. I, I, I try to be self-aware, but I'm imperfect is if they make a mistake, I'll see my son go, oh, I got to start all over again, daddy. And my son's eight turning nine next month. And I said, no, Kobe, it's okay. You know, like I said, um, you know, it looks amazing. It was no. And it's, it's as a parent, um, maybe you'll have, uh, you, you're like the, one of the world's leading experts. Um, I sometimes struggle myself of letting him know that mistakes are okay. And yet it's sometimes hard to break through to get through to him that, and my daughter too, that mistakes are part of the process. So to honor the process of creativity and engaged imagination, like uh, Sir Ken Robinson said, you know, creativity is applied imagination. When we apply our imagination, we can have many false starts. We could go in many different directions before we end up at a place that we didn't even imagine that we could end up. And that part of that uncertainty is what makes it so exciting to go on this adventure of creativity and discovery. Which, you know, reminds me of the, the, um, 
uh, Stephen Jobs, didn't he, didn't he give the um, graduating address uh, speech where he talked about taking calligraphy classes, which sounds like, oh, well, that was a waste of time. And what did you do with that, you know, course? And it was like, no, that actually led to a lot of what I learned about design for uh, Apple products. And, and they're renowned for that. And just as you're saying, you learned all of this about creativity at Saturday Night Live, and then you're doing all these other applications. That's, you know, you, it was not for not. There was lots of creativity that was brought forward. Yeah, that I'm happy you brought that up because that's such a great life skill. I even think parents are reinventing themselves constantly too in the times that we live in in different in different capacities and constantly growing and learning. I mean, I know I am, so I shouldn't speak for all parents. And I feel that I used to ask myself, what does learning this or reading this book, what's that possibly going to do to help me in this part of my career or help me as a parent? I don't say that anymore because I realize that when I learn one skill, even handwriting, for example, that has so many different applications beyond the literal skill itself. So for example, when I learned handwriting, I am now excellent at improvising on my feet I, by focusing and seeing people's strengths. I have the ability now to dive deeply into questioning, which is something that I didn't really know how to do when I was younger, listening to understand. I'm speaking more now because this is the interview interviewee in a conversation, but I have learned to be an effective listener when I'm helping people in that capacity. So creatively, if you have a child, I'll give you another example. I had a uh, student who was not happy with school. They had uh, come from another country and there was a language uh, barrier at the beginning and they just had trouble fitting in but they were good at one thing, video games. The parents came to see me because the, the child uh, trusted me, I think. And I told the parents, come see me. You know what? We'll figure this out. And they were very stubborn at the beginning. When, I, when they said to me, he only plays video games when he gets home. This is a problem. It's cutting into his work. And it, it's, it's not social. We want him to do other things. And by the way, this is a different child than the first one I mentioned. And the son listened. And I said to him, so you're really good at video games, huh? I said, what do you like about video games? And he painted this whole picture. I love the worlds. I love engaging with these different characters and their stories. And I, I just lose myself in this world. And I'm not uh, he didn't say I'm not happy, but in his own way as a 14-year-old, he said, it's, it's a world, it, I, I just like being there. And I don't always like, you know, talking to other people. And, and we listened and I just turned to the parent and I said, I, I know you may not like to hear this, but I think he should be doing even more technology, but beyond video games. So I agree that if you're playing video games all the time, again, with my kids with the iPod, my wife and I are, are conscious that, you know, when, when enough is enough and what those boundaries are. And it's hard as a parent because sometimes you're tired and those iPads become babysitters that you need a break. But with this child, I said, let's get him involved in a tech club at school. And the parent and the parents, their their gut reaction was no, he's already involved. We no more technology. Just can he play sports or something else? I said, yeah, sports is a great idea too. I, absolutely, that should be part of his life. But in the the first step is, 
let's get them involved in the tech club because every club in the school has an event they put on. And when we go back to hybrid schools, you know, uh, I believe that there will be uh, a need for that for parents who are listening, whose kids are obsessed with video games. I said, get kids involved in the tech club because they will run the school. They'll meet other kids. They'll be the behind the scenes people that all the other kids need to turn to in order to help run their clubs, fashion show and the awards banquets. And they said, okay, Mr. Cohen, we've, you know, we'll, we'll try it. And I said to the kid and the kid was reluctant. He's like, I don't know. I, I don't know anything about that. I said, look, you're still good in video games. My instinct is you're really good with technical things. Like you're really good on the computer. You could probably teach me how to use this Mac. He goes, I don't know, maybe. I'm like, you probably could. You probably know a lot more than you do just by being in this world, in these online worlds. Guess what happened? Within two months, he became the rising star of the tech club at this school. And everybody knew him. I would walk down the hall. They'd all, hey, what's going on? And I, I said to him, you know all these people now? He goes, yeah, because I had to run. I, I, you know, I was on the committee for the last three things. Again, the parents came back to me and said, oh my God, all of his learning from that, the video games we couldn't stand, we see that he's brilliant with technology. I said, yeah, yeah, he is. That's what he gravitates toward. So the point of that is let your kids follow wherever their creativity takes them, whether it's Taekwondo, whether it's knitting, whether it is baseball, whether it is reading graphic novels, as long as it's healthy and long as it's appropriate, their use of time, it doesn't matter what my kids are interested in, in terms of their creative paths. My wife and I are like, you tell us we are a thousand percent behind you. And I learned that not as a parent, but as a teacher and head of director of student activities. You want your kids to have more friends? Yeah. Get them involved in activities where those type of kids are attracted so that they become magnets for other kids who are like-minded and they develop that creative drive in those areas. Yeah. So, and to your point, creativity encompasses so much more than what we think of as, as you know, crayons and markers and, and paint. It's, we, we got to be broader in our definition and give them that exposure and then be encouraging to help channel that, which you do so great as a teacher and you, and so well as a parent. Um, can we, do you have more you want to say about creativity? Because I do want to make sure in the short time we have left with you that we talk about how teachers you, that are stuck in Google Classrooms and doing this online might use the power of storytelling and relationship to, to try to get a little bit more engagement in the classroom. Because I think that's a big burning issue right now. Yeah, let's let's shift to that. Yeah. And, and, and let me acknowledge, because my wife is a high school teacher. She's in the room beside us on her final day before the break. And I see how challenging that is, not just for the student, but for the teacher. And if parents are listening to this, I know you know this, um, but teachers are finding their way just as students are and just as parents are, and they are doing their best. Our unsung uh, heroes, I, I have such respect. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's not easy because now there are different boundaries and I respect the school boards with their different reasons for doing these. But, you know, often the teacher isn't even looking at the students like Allison, we're looking right now. I find as a professional speaker and facilitator, I don't know about you, if I don't see the people I'm speaking with, it can be a challenge, not just for, you know, two minutes, but for an entire period of time, because we can't gauge 
if people are engaged. And so that's what teachers are dealing with because they're not allowed to be seen in many cases, but there's certain boundaries they are. Like they, you see my backdrop. My wife's backdrop is sometimes seen, sometimes it's not based on certain classes and rules. And the students are often not seen. They're often in, in high school, there's just their name on the screen. So that's what, and my sister's a teacher too. That's what teachers are dealing with. So it's a challenge. In elementary, I saw my, my son when he was at home for a couple of weeks because one of his teachers had COVID earlier uh, many months ago. So he was home, you know, he was at home for two weeks because of that. They did have the cameras on, interestingly enough, um, unlike the high school. Um, but that's another conversation. So here are a few things that teachers can do to the best of their abilities that I find instantly helpful, even if you aren't always given access to actually see the people you're speaking with. The first one is look directly in the camera on your computer or your phone if you're speaking into a phone. So right now I'm doing my best to look directly into the camera, which is right up here. I'm smiling and when I look in the camera and I smile a little bit, I hope that you feel that in how I'm projecting my voice. And when you do that, I want you to not think about as a teacher, you have 25 students you're speaking with. You're going to look into that camera like Mr. Rogers said, and you are going to speak with each student individually. So on that screen, you might have a name. In this case, it's Allison. So I'm going to be speaking with 25 students, but I'm going to be actually looking up here. I maybe divert my eyes to Allison and I'm thinking, I'm just having a conversation with Allison. I am actually tutoring Allison one-on-one -on -one right now. And the reason you do that, and this is what Mr. Rogers did, who was speaking to millions of children every week, is he said, I look right into that camera and I want to connect with each child to make them feel like the precious kids and human beings that they are, to paraphrase Mr. Rogers. It was in his one of his uh, biographies. So actors know that too. Bill Murray, the brilliant comedian and Saturday Night Live alumni said his acting coach, his great mentor in acting said, when you are acting, don't act for an audience, act for one person. You want to make one person smile. You want to connect with one person in the audience. Even though you're looking at the audience, you're thinking about one person in that present space. So that tip alone makes the people on the other end feel like you're speaking to them. Don't say you all. Don't say everyone. That is something that I hear speakers do all the time virtually. The reason is it follows along those lines. Say you with, it, with that tone with you, with that compassion, empathetic tone. When you look there, when you smile, even if right now you can't hear me because it's a podcast, I hope you feel my appreciation for you, that I want to connect with you as a parent, you as a human being, you as a teacher. And that will come through. And that's a, that's a tactic, an authentic tactic that the most successful, when I say successful, that's relative. The, the comedians, the singers, the performers who you admire the most,
they do that. Have you ever been to a concert by you two or, or, or some group that has a Coldplay? I've been at a Coldplay concert or a U2 concert. It feels like they're singing to you. They're singing love songs to me, Jamie. Right. You, you know that they're going to ask me to come backstage and meet the band after because he was looking right at me. That message was for me. I know it. Right at you. And, <laughs> and, and for every reason, because, uh, you know, if Allison's in the room, you command respect. You have the, uh, the large first letter. <laughs> but that's true. You can do that. And then the second thing is from a mutual friend of ours, Mark Bowden, who is the one of, if not the leading body language expert and a human behavior expert. Mark Bowden said something to me, which I actually shared in a group we were both in that really resonated with, with professional speakers that teachers can use as a mindset going into a class virtually. And that's this. Mark said, don't act like an expert. Just show them your passion for what you're teaching. Don't act like the expert. Show them the passion you have for what you're teaching. And the reason that is so powerful is because sometimes as teachers, I'll speak in my case, when I started teaching, I thought I needed to prove to the class how knowledgeable I was about English literature or drama or U.S. history. And you do have to prove to them knowledge is a key component for students. But you know what else is even more important for kids? To show them you care, not just about the subject, but about them. So when you show passion, you've instantly become a teacher who stands out for the right reasons. So what you don't want is to show them this. If you're tired, hey guys. Uh, okay. So we're going to go over the following two things today. No, you want to come in and you don't have to be with Tony Robbins energy, but you're not going to, you're not going to have that energy anyways. That, that can be contrived. Just saying, I'm going to ramp it up a bit and show them how enthusiastic I am about this book or about this math problem, that is going to project well virtually because they're not used to that. They're used to, and I'm not saying other teachers do this, they're used to just more mo monotone, you know, people speaking to them, you know, no, 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 no. Yeah, like every Zoom meeting. Yeah. Every Zoom meeting. <laughs> and this goes for parents who have work environments. What I just said is equally applicable to you. I say this to executive groups, like I have this week. Speak to one person in a group of five in your meeting. Be passionate about speaking to your audience, not uh, uh, uh. boring. Don't be boring. That should be a big goal. Don't be boring. And the last thing I want to I want to bring across to you for parents and for teachers is get a little bit bold in telling short stories about yourself or about your life or about something that's relevant for your kids or for your students. This doesn't have to be a personal story if you're single about a date you went on last night. That's not appropriate. I am talking about if you're talking about English literature, in my case, and you read a book that really moved you when you were in high school, why did it move you? What was it about it? What was the story from the book that you related to your own life? 
And I'm going to give you a three-step way that you can tell stories instantly and also differentiate yourself from the majority of people who don't really understand how to tell a story. And I talk about this in my book. It's simple, but again, it, it's, it's not easy to apply, but you can be a good storyteller. Everybody can be a raconteur. Everybody has stories from their life that are not just valuable, but inspiring to people. And as a parent and as a teacher, here's what you can do. You can start a class with these three questions answered that's relevant to the story. Instead of just the boring, let's take attendance, let's do housekeeping, blah, blah, blah. And this goes for a meeting. You tell what happened. You think about what you want to get across. What is that theme or idea you want to get across in that thing? And you look at your own life. You take 10 minutes and you say, when does that happen in my life? Or what's something that I read or one that I did? What happened? Who, what, where, when, why? Okay, just what happened? Just get to the point. In 1997, this happened. Or, and just give it as short as you can, about 30 seconds. Then you say how it made you feel because good storytelling is about a little bit of vulnerability, not wearing your emotions on your sleeve, but just sharing more than I was happy. I was sad. I was a little bit anxious. I didn't know. Maybe that's too uh, technical word, but I didn't know what was going to happen. I was a bit uncertain about things. Have you ever been in that situation where you felt uncertain, where you didn't know what was going to happen next? That's how I felt. And you notice I'm putting my passion in this. And then you give the takeaway. So in school and business and parenting, mm. you give a takeaway, you say, and so I'm telling you this because when you read a book, I hope that you gain the same level of understanding about yourself in this area as I had in my life. And I want that for you. So that's why we're reading Shakespeare right now. That's why we're doing math because I felt that when I did this, it translated into you know me being better at finances, about managing my own money. I didn't see it at the time, but now I know that. So in every story, you say, what happened? How did it make you feel? And what the takeaway was? In any biography, Allison's a prolific writer. You write, not you, Allison, but I'm saying you, <laughs> when you write a book, when you write a book, if, if it's biographical at all, there's a lot of you know, layers. But ultimately, it's what happened in every story. How did it make you feel? Showing a little bit of vulnerability. And why, why are you telling the story? Well, here's the takeaway. And if you start a class with that, your next class with that as a parent, before asking your kid, how was your day? And most kids, I don't know. I mean, I honestly answer that too. How was your talk? I don't know. I mean, it was good, I guess. I mean, it's a big question, but it's a lazy question. You can start off by saying, I know you're studying this. You know what it reminds me of? When I was in second grade, this happened. And I didn't know. And we go through that process. My kids are obsessed with my stories about my life, not my famous stories of famous people. They the are obsessed, ones. right? They're obsessed with when I told them that I got bullied because I wouldn't drink lemon juice straight because these kids wanted to push my buttons. And I drank lemon juice and I, and I threw up and I felt terrible. And I never made that mistake again, that I wouldn't be given to peer pressure. My seven and eight-year-olds are like leaning in like, oh my God. You actually drank lemon juice, daddy? What did that? It hurt my throat. Oh my God, really? That, so it's those stories that really connect you with your kids and connect you with your students, not just showing that you know what you're doing as a parent, whatever that means, and you know what you're doing as a teacher. Tell those short stories. And that also goes for the virtual meetings that parents find them on. Tell uh, yeah. your team virtual stories. Especially. That will win them. 
Yeah, I was going to say, especially now that we don't have that in-person connection. Um, Jamie, I got to have you on again because there's so much more wisdom that you have to share with my audience. And uh, and I want all my parents to know that I will be putting all the links to your books, to your par- online parenting class for teens, um, all those great resources so they can uh, find out more about you. And if you're hearing this at the capacity of a parent, great, a teacher, super. But again, people in the business world, you have a whole leadership um, aspect to your business too. And uh, I want to wish you and your family a fantastic holiday. What a great way for me to wrap up the end of my work year with with you. So thank you so, so much for these insights. My pleasure. And thank you so much. I love speaking with you. I always learn and I always feel better at the end of a talk than the beginning. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast. So thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.